Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Daring Live. We are back again, and look who's with us. It's the birthday boy himself. <laughs> Mr. Pete Wernick, everybody. <laughs> no, I'm not Ralph Stanley, whose birthday it also is today. Is that right? Oh, wow. Nor am I George Harrison, whose birthday it is today. Right, you are very much Mr. Pete Wernick. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, I'm sure most of you do, but Pete Wernick is renowned worldwide for his contributions to bluegrass music, the hot-picking force in several trend-setting bands, including the mighty and powerful Hot Rise. He is a highly respected author and teacher, creating the Wernick Method, which has helped so many people discover the joys of banjo around the world. He is a songwriter and served as president of the IBMA for 15 years, until 2001, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. He was also born, as I mentioned, 75 years ago to the day. Please welcome, on his birthday, Dr. Banjo himself, Mr. Pete Wernick. Pete, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing really well. It's a sunny day in Colorado. We had a big snow last night, so my wife and I sat out on the porch and watched all the birds at our feeder and little tufts of snow falling off trees. And we were all in our, we're sitting out there in our winter clothes, but the sun's shining on us. It's a great Colorado type of way of greeting the day so uh I'm very lucky to be here you're out near the uh, mountains and you're near boulder right family. that kind of area yeah we're right near boulder we can yeah. see boulder pretty much from our house amazing 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 thank you so much for joining us today um i know you had a ton of plans and places to be and people to see with everything going on <laughs> had so to open a I, lot of emails i i appreciate you giving up your schedule <laughs> Uh, today, but seriously, happy birthday from all of us. Let's just start right there. Um, Thank you. And, uh, uh, I have to say, during Banjo's, he's had a long relationship with Janet and Greg and the, the whole company. Been there in person a time or two, and uh, it's just amazing what Deering has accomplished and continues to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I'm very proud to be associated with such a good company. Right. Likewise feeling is very much mutual so thank you um david i'm gonna let you jump in uh, and start the show david bendraski with us as always all the way from uh, the wonderful state of louisiana take it away sir happy birthday pete good to see you thank you david well yeah thanks for thanks for uh, joining us on making time on your birthday and, and joining us and uh um when we kind of get started with a little history of how you started you know, playing the banjo, what inspired you to, to pick up the instrument? Well, I grew up in uh, the Bronx in a, <clears throat> a really nice neighborhood uh, with a lot of uh, interesting people, and uh, I got to have a great circle of friends when I was a teenager, and along with the normal things that kids would do, <clears throat> smoking an occasional cigarette, I suppose, <laughs> uh, although I quit when I was uh, about 14. <laughs> uh, but uh, one of the things we would do is sit around and play folk songs, or, or I should say, they did. They play. Uh, had friends who played guitar and banjo, and uh, I would sit in there and try to sing. And uh, but I didn't play anything. I never had taken any lessons or anything. But I had. There was a banjo in the house, thanks to my dad and my friend Jake, who just got in touch with me to say happy birthday today from Mexico. He. Uh, he said, I ought to show you something. Uh, you want to learn how to do frailing on the banjo. So he showed me the basic frailing move. He is the same person who had played me a record of Flat and Scruggs prior to that sometime. And that really made an impression stuck in my head. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, anyway, so I, uh, but the first month or so of playing was learning how to just follow guitar chords. Um, and that 
then I was able to cord along and frail and do Pete Seeger type stuff. And then I thought, what's this guy Scruggs doing? And then from there, it was very uh, uphill, blind leading the blind situation where at the time there was nothing in print zero uh, that said anything about learning Scruggs style. And once in a while, I'd hear somebody who could play Scruggs style, and it was just seemed like a miracle, just a total miracle. But uh, from playing with my friends, I could at least hear chord changes, so I would put on Flat and Scruggs records, and I could tell what the chords were if I tried playing along, and piece by piece, I started hearing notes that were coming off of Earl's banjo, and I could match those, and after a couple of years, I, I could actually basically play Scruggs style, and, and then I started looking for people to play with, and I found out about the big jams that would happen down in Washington Square Park in Lower Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And that's where I met an incredible array of New York City musicians, including two of my still heroes today, David Grisman and Jody Stecker, who influenced a lot of people back then. When, and they're about my age, but they were ahead of me. <laughs> So I would listen to them, and after a while, I could get to play with them. And uh, I just made it my business to try to always put together some kind of a bluegrass band uh, because playing banjo is great to do by yourself, but it's a whole different thing when you're in a group and you're on a team, so, so to speak. And the team of a bluegrass group playing together is one of the big thrills that I ever get to engage in. And uh, so I've always looked for people to play with. And when I got to Ithaca, New York, to do part of my school studies there, I looked around for musicians. And luckily, Russ Barenberg lived in town, and I found him. And Tony Trishka lived the next town over in Syracuse. And uh, the three of us and some other people put together country cooking in the early 1970s and um, got to make records. and sort of get a career started and then a real major thing happened to me when one of the guys in country cooking john miller suggested to me that i should i could could and should write a banjo instruction book and i had already been teaching a lot of people how to play uh by way of private lessons and had figured out a few things not to do uh with teaching uh and thought of you know various ways of helping people along so i had a whole method going and I was able to put that in a book. And then when the book came out, it sold amazingly well. And the royalties from that is basically what changed my life and made it possible for me to dedicate the rest of my life to being in the music business. Right. Uh, I was able to live off of those for a while. And uh, that's during the time we, that time we moved out to Colorado and I got to start Hot Rise and a lot of things took off from that. What was that book again? Because one of my first books was was with you and Tony Trishka on the cover, um, and then and then I, I believe another one of my first books was both like solely written by you. I forget the name of of them. Well, the first one that I put out was called Bluegrass Banjo, a very clever title, but there wasn't any other book by that. Title. It might have been that one. It might have been well, that. Yeah, that had uh, actually the guy on the cover of that, you don't see his face, but that guy's name is Jack Baker, who I worked with in New York City uh, prior to writing the book. And uh, then Tony and I are on the back cover of the book called Masters of the Five String That's Magic it. That's it. That yeah. came out in the 80s and it's still available. I still have copies that I sell off my website. And that was 
a huge and interesting undertaking getting to talk to at length, I mean, long conversation with Ralph Stanley, long conversation with J.D. Crow, and taping the whole thing, and and almost the whole interview would get in the book because we thought we'd submit this whole gigantic book and have them edit the crap out of it. <laughs> and instead, they just printed it all, and it came <laughs> out to 431 pages, and it's pretty heavy. Um, and um, but that book is pretty pretty neat to have done. It's sort of like my my second doctoral thesis, uh, mm-hmm. so to speak, because uh, we had 70, 70 banjo players in that book, and uh, uh, <laughs> it was a, a real magnum opus, you might say, and I'm so glad to uh, have been able to do it, work with Tony Trishka for several years on that. Yeah, it's amazing how you were lucky to stump to just kind of meet these amazing musicians. He's mentioned David Grisman and Russ Berenberg and Tony, um, just as, you know, in your, as a very young musicians. Well, in New York City, that was a very fortunate part about being in New York City. Uh, you know, for one thing, there's enough people to have a bluegrass band in the early 60s. What I've told people is that, by my calculations, literally about one in a million people was seriously into bluegrass and in the New York metropolitan area at that time that would be one out of a million 15 million people that makes 15 people and that was about as many people as there were who were really into bluegrass so Winnie Winston was a great banjo player that I learned a lot from and Gene Lowinger who played later with Bill Monroe and other people who Steve Arkin who played with Bill Monroe they were just people who lived around there and when I found out that they congregated in one place outdoors where you could just go and watch them and get to know them and maybe do some picking with them. Eric Weisberg lived uh, around there and uh, you name it. Uh, people like Dave Van Rock and even Bob Dylan would show up at Washington Square Park sometimes. Mm-hmm. And um, there was reunions uh, going there. I think they're still going for a while because uh, it was a really lively scene and it gave me a chance to see and hear real bluegrass played right in front of me, which was a real head-turning experience. The the three-part harmony was a a miracle to me when I heard three people just put their faces together and make this amazing sound together. And that was part of the whole bluegrass um, miraculous thing. It's just bluegrass was an amazing um, turn on to me between all the different skills and and sounds that came out of uh, people. And, and I got in a band that I, of people I met in Washington Square Park. <laughs> and uh, we, we put together a band that had original material and played on the radio and did this and that. And uh, it was just real thrilling days there in the 1960s in New York. And and you mentioned how how important it was to hear a live bluegrass band, and and how much that probably helped your playing. Could you? Well, times with students, I noticed they don't listen to much um, much banjo playing or bluegrass, but they want to play. So maybe you could talk a little about how important yeah. they listen. Well, when I started teaching, I would say, well, you have to get these records, and I'd make a whole list of records for people to get. And in that book, Bluegrass Banjo, I listed a, a lot of records. It happened that I was a DJ for my college radio station. I was able to get records for pretty cheap. So I built a wonderful record collection 
But if I realized that if I told uh, a banjo student to get these 10 records, that was going to send him back quite a bit of money. <laughs> and uh, But it was still so important. Uh, I would always recommend to people that they would make a listening tape out of their favorite banjo cuts for tone. That is, where the tone just turned them on. Well, put those all together, all those pieces together on one tape and listen to it a lot. Just listen to it as you're cleaning up the house or driving in the car and you'll embed the sound of what, what you think is great banjo tone in your, in your brain that way. And um, uh, I still recommend that a lot, but now we don't have to buy, go out and buy records. Records are available online, of course, and so we have the Wernick method that I'm in charge of now, we have uh, playlists. We have a playlist of 116 top jamming favorites. And uh, that saves people having to go out <laughs> and see if they can find a whole lot of vinyl and CDs and everything, and they can listen to 116 uh, songs. And there are, uh, the, one of the playlists is on YouTube, so they can watch a real live bluegrass band. Usually they're the classic bands who recorded these songs in the first place, and you get to watch them. So um, we, we just make all these uh, playlists available to our uh, students in the Wernick Method. And actually, anybody can avail themselves of that. If they just go to letspick.org, um, at the top of every page, there's a link where you can click and have uh, the links to the playlist sent to you with the whole guide on um, whether you have to um, move forward on on the recording to before they actually start to play or it's in the middle of the set someplace. Anyway, we have a whole guide to listen to these top 116 songs. And um, that is a big, big part. Uh, getting the music into your head is such a big part of it. It's like learning a language, really. And if you're around a language a lot, it's a lot easier to learn than if you're just trying to learn it out of a book or something. Mm -hmm. Well, since we're talking about listening, would you want to play something for us? Listening and playing, yes, I can do do that gladly. Um, I'll make a little, it's not exactly a disclaimer, but um, I haven't been doing a whole lot of practicing because there's been no gigs, you know, but <laughs> Just, uh, uh, this getting ready for this program and, and gave me some inspiration. And so I'm going to play a tune that's a little on the uh, gentle side. Won't be too rambunctious, but this is a tune I'm real fond of. It's called Birdsong Creek. It's on one of my records, and it's a very calm thing that uh, I believe I made up in the woods sometime, and I asked at a concert I asked when I was about to play it I said if anybody can think of a name for this I might just use it and then a, a kid came up with the name Birdsong Creek and I thought perfect and you might even hear something that sounds vaguely birdsong like during the tune here it is <laughs> Thank you. 
That's that's great, Pete. Thank you for that. That's just to calm everybody down if they were <laughs> too worked up here on a Thursday. Well, we have some other guests waiting waiting in the wings here um, that want to say hello to you. Oh, great! We want to bring in uh, Greg and Janet Deering. Here. Ah, Hi. I was hoping I'd see them. Hi, Pete. Greg, you went you went and grew your hair some more. <laughs> well, and how you look? Been to the barber since the lockdown started. Wow. That's cool. I guess, uh, yeah, Tony Trishka and Bela Fleck must have had a pact going because they both let their beards grow. And right. Oh, yeah, I could have done that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's actually still shorter than it was when Jen and I got married. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. I didn't know you at that point. No. Well, that's cool. But I mean, I know you lost some regular body weight, so that makes up a little bit. You get a little hair weight back. There you go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We've got to compensate. Congratulations on that, too. I think losing weight when you're past the age of 30 is an incredible challenge, and I'm impressed. I was fortunate that it, it worked, and it's just part of my lifestyle now. But we're here to wish you a happy birthday yeah. in 75 years. That's pretty special. It's kind of amazing. I never uh, could have imagined living to 75. I used to look at this wall chart I had and think, wow, in the year 2000, I'll be 54. That was a mind blower. I couldn't even imagine being 54. And I really couldn't imagine even being 55. <laughs> but like I like to say, 75 is the new 74. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good one. That's good. Well, we sure. That's what it is congratulate you and just want to say how much we appreciate all the special magic that you brought to the banjo and to bluegrass and to everybody that wants to make music for all these years. That's very nice of you to say, Greg, and I can only say coming from a person who's done as much as you've done for the banjo, that's a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing to hear. And I can tell you, and I know this is true of you too, and I know it's true of Janet, because I've known her as long as I've known you, that this is not just a job. This is not something, oh, I need a job. Oh, here's a job I can do this. It's more like, I've got to do this. 
Yes. Don't yeah, stop do. me because I've got to do this. <laughs> and I felt that way about uh, playing bluegrass and uh, all the stuff that I've done around music. And uh, a lot of, well, when I go on my high school chat line, everybody's talking about retirement and where they're going for vacation and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, hey, no, I'm busy. I, I got stuff to do. I'm not, uh, I'm not retired. Uh, I, I'm doing what I want to do. And um, I'll do it as long as I can. And it's so wonderful being part of the world of, of bluegrass because you, there's so many neat people. I've met so many interesting people from the word go and having traveled around the world a fair amount uh, to play, it's really so, what a great ticket the banjo has been to uh, uh, a journey that uh, I could have only, I couldn't have imagined back when. So I feel extremely lucky to, to well, have stumbled into it kind of. Yeah. <laughs> You've brought a lot of joy to a lot of people. That's well, right. thank you. Around the world with all your training, the Pete Wernick method and all of that, it's amazing what you've been able to do. Well, you know, one of my proudest things is when Ned Lubarecki came up and told me, I started with your book. And I'm thinking, wow. that, that alone is enough to be proud of myself if I started him because he's such yes. a great player and done so much for music as well. So I yeah. uh, heard from him today, too. That was really nice to hear from Ned. And um I was going to mention, you know, David talked about I run into these different people. Uh, one of my students decided I was the Forrest Gump of bluegrass. <laughs> because there are so many things that happen. I say, well, I was there. I saw that or I knew that person or whatever. And I, uh, just the fact that I went to the very first bluegrass festival in 1965 when I was 19 years old and had the good fortune to... Uh, I mean, I could go right up to Stars of Bluegrass because there wasn't that many people there at that first festival. And uh, there was no buses and nobody in, you know, shiny Cadillacs or anything like that. It was, it was hard times for Bluegrass in 1965. But I could go up to Jimmy Martin and say, could I interview you? And he said, sure. So I got to interview him. I got to interview Carter and Ralph Stanley. And wow. I found out that I have one of the rare interviews of him being, inter uh, I mean, recordings of him being interviewed. And uh, Mac Wiseman and Don Reno also uh, gave me a very good interview. And um, all these different personalities, especially coming down from New York City, where I was from, to, uh, to encounter um, uh, people who are from a whole different culture and fi find that I could be accepted if I knew my bluegrass, which I did. So... Um, uh, that was a, a special thing for me to be able to go to go places and have people actually find a place for me, you know, it's crawling out of my campsite, uh, you know, in the morning after staying up late picking and somebody's actually there with a cup of coffee for me. I thought, this, these bluegrass people are all right. And I, when I was IBMA president, I used to say stuff like, come for the music, stay for the people. There you go. Uh, Another thing like that is I uh, come for Earl Scruggs and his banjo sound, stay for bluegrass music. Because when I was first interested in, in banjo, it was only, all I wanted to hear was Earl Scruggs. I didn't want to hear the fiddle break, didn't want to hear the dobro break, couldn't care about flat singing or anything. Uh, Bill Monroe was a, f a foreign sound to me. It took me a while to get used to him. 
but within a few years, uh, these people were deep in my soul, and uh, I, I love bluegrass singing as much as I love bluegrass banjo playing now, which is saying a lot. <laughs> anyway. It's a beautiful sound. I enjoy it, too. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> There's a lot of good Deering banjos making a lot of good sounds all over this place. Yeah. In fact, I have my good time banjo here. Speaking of Deering banjos, this banjo gets played about as much as my main workhorse banjo that I play on stage because this is the one that you can keep in the living room and just sort of leave it out. <laughs> and uh, if somebody were to if the dog were to crawl on it or something like that, you say, well, the dog crawled on it and it's no big deal. It's just a it's just a light banjo. In fact, I, I did a little promo for you guys and I actually was able to hold the banjo like this. I don't know if you can see that. But there's not many banjos you can hold like right around the first fret and not break your wrist, but that's how light it is, which is a pleasure. And... Uh, makes a good banjo sound. I guess you can't see it that well with this uh, particular. But uh, but I, uh, I'm, I'm not really a claw hammer player, although the very first stuff I ever learned was, let's see. As you noticed, my hands were invisible and I had my wife put on a Bruce Molsky record. No, <laughs> that was me. <laughs> Sorry, Bruce, I don't mean to insult you like that. Um, but um, that's one of the things that's so neat about the uh, the Good Time banjo is that it's, it's not a, I mean, I know it takes a lot to make them. I've seen them being made and it's deceptive but it's a very simple, it feels very simple. It's a, as um, Tony Trishka likes to call it, it's a drum on a stick. <laughs> 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 oh, okay, yeah, it's a drum. And, um, it, but it's a real banjo and the fact that it's so affordable means go ahead and try it. If you don't like it, you can always sell it in the paper or something like that and get back all or most of your money for it. And meanwhile, you could see if you like the banjo. So there's just so much you can do when you're just getting started on the banjo. I guess you can't see the right hand from there, but just a... Now that doesn't sound like rocket science, is it? No, but... Ah, now it's starting to sound like something. And then if you just do this, let's see if I can get my hand in the right place where it can be seen. Yeah, just so. I didn't change what my right hand's doing. I'm just sliding my finger on the third string. That's not too hard. And when you hear yourself doing that, you say, huh, <laughs> this is not as hard as at least some of it is not that hard. Maybe I'll just start with the easy stuff, and that's what I recommend. In fact, there's one thing that I really like showing people. 
once I've shown them the the forward backward roll, which looks just eight simple notes, but if you play the right stuff with your left hand, you can get That done real good for Earl, that song. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that is all, what I just did is only played with a cert one roll. You just have to put your left hand in the right place and that cool tune comes out and um, there are some really great little goodies that can fall in your lap like that once you decide you're really gonna do this thing. And, um, and then just playing along in a jam, why that could hardly be easier. Like when I started, as I was saying at the beginning, I just learned how to follow chords, and a lot of the chords were G, C, and D. So once you can play those and do anything with your right hand, you can be joining in a jam. And then once you learn a banjo roll to play along in the jam, you can do song after song after song. You know, for me, the biggest treat was when I realized I could go like, uh, This land is your land, this land is mine. favorite songs and uh, three chords so I uh, I uh, I'm not exactly in charge of this campaign but I, I I'd like to uh, if I had a zillion dollars I'd give most of it to anybody who could get the schools of our country to accept the idea that during good time banjos are about as cheap as the uh, uh, violins and cellos and saxophones they buy for schools and that are in big supply in all these schools <clears throat> and you can get people singing that song and playing the chords really soon in the first month of the school year and the fact is that when you're playing a saxophone you can't sing <laughs> <laughs> and it's really hard to sing while you're playing a violin or a recorder or some of the other instruments uh, that they give out at schools so I really think that the song This Land Is Your Land is something that should be taught to every school kid like in about the fifth grade or so just that would be great but what would probably end up happening is that a lot of people would get hooked on the banjo and bluegrass and things and then we'd have people learning stuff that I like and not just um, Debussy or perfectly good composers that I'm not too familiar with but there's so much stuff taught in the schools that uh, the kids aren't really going to use but if they learn how to play stringed instruments especially fretted stringed instruments because they're so much easier when they have frets on <laughs> mm -hmm. right Greg isn't that why you put those things on because <laughs> yeah. they help you get the chord right yeah. So that was a, a purpose that I, I was actually starting to do some campaigning and some organizing for that. But at the same time, I also thought I could start the Wernick method, and I only had time to do one or the other. And I decided to start the Wernick method, and and that's uh, you know that's me using my 
teaching my methods of teaching jamming to other teachers, and they're all over the place now, all around the country and in other countries teaching jamming. So I spend a lot of my time kind of overseeing that whole operation. And uh, it's a good thing to do from my nice little perch here in uh, Colorado. <laughs> Don't have to get on the planes quite as often and the buses quite as often. Right. Well, what do you have your sights on for the next 10, 15 years there, Pete? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I think I'm going to clean up my room at some point in there. I can't tell what year <laughs> it might be, but it's on It's on the list. And uh, um Joan and I, you know, we have a record that we really like and we have enough material for another record. I should, we really need to do that. <clears throat> I have a whole bunch of gigs that didn't happen last year that I hope will happen. And I'm still active with a total of four acts, more or less. Um, none of them are that busy. One of them you've heard of, Hot Rise. And uh, we're not officially done as a band, but we haven't been working lately. And, uh, but, um, we're all on good terms, and um, you know, uh, there's something that's supposed to happen later this year that they'll call us into action for, and hopefully, uh, Hot Rise will see the light of day here and there. But I also uh, play in a duet with my wife, and uh, we're old, you know, we're in our mid 70s, but uh, we just played the other night, and it sounded pretty darn good, and we're looking forward to getting out in front of people some more. Wow. And then we have the Flexigrass band that she's the lead singer of. And Flexigrass is a concoction I came up with uh, almost 30 years ago after Hot Rise had disbanded because I always wanted to be in a band with a vibraphone and a clarinet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, a particular drummer whose style that I really liked, I always wanted to be in a band with somebody who played like that. And then I found out he had moved and he lived right near me, <laughs> Chris Ditson, and we started this band was originally called the Live Five, but it's called Flexigrass now, and uh, it's pretty adventurous music that um, uh, is based around Scruggs-style banjo, more or less. It's not trying to be jazz, but having people with jazz um, influences, it's interesting to play with them, so I always enjoy getting together with them and trying out a, a different original material. And then I'm also in a straight old good traditional bluegrass band called Long Road Home that's based around here in Boulder with some excellent musicians that are uh, younger than my son, <laughs> but they let me be in the band with them and uh, we we gig around too and it's real traditional and we wear suits and um, so that's the whole gamut to be able to play a little bit of all those kinds of music and then supervise teachers and live in Colorado. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lucky person. I, I'm not sick. <laughs> My feet don't hurt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Things are looking pretty good. <laughs> That's great. Well, we sure hope to get to experience many, many more years with you. Thank you. That's really nice of you, Greg. And uh, I just got to thank you publicly for the amazing work you did on the resonator of my old banjo. Uh, it had gotten fractured thanks to mishandling by some companies that managed to break parts of the banjo even when the case was closed. And it's a heavily padded case and all that. And they pretty much fractured. You can't see it before. So if I show them after, people will just say, well, that's just a banjo resonator. <laughs> but this thing used to look so bad. <laughs> and Greg just 
and his team did the most amazing job uh, matching up the wood and the stain and all this stuff and turned a really bad looking um, bunch of cracks and flaked off stuff and made it look new again and that was uh, that was a, a gesture which I really took as an honor from one of the great banjo makers to take his time to do something like that for me it made me very grateful so well thank you publicly <laughs> well thank you and it was it was a privilege for us to get to help you with that well uh, it, thank you <laughs> my luthier was very impressed i got to tell you the guy who uh, works on my banjo around here he had fixed it up any number of times and say you you got two more than what i can do here and you did it yeah well we make we make new banjos like that every day so we had the resources. Yeah, I guess. I don't know if you remember, the first time I did some gluing back together for that resonator was in about 1982, when you came out and did a workshop at our factory, and it had just gotten broken again, and I glued it back together while you were there. Right. <laughs> that, that poor resonator has been through it. Yeah. That was actually a different banjo. This one is the one that I got in 1988. So oh, yeah. you had my older Gibson banjo that time. Oh, okay. so it was a 1931 thing that I had. Uh, but anyway, uh, I still remember your original plant back in wherever the heck it was. I did a workshop there and I met Wayne Rice there. Good buddy. Later got to know him a lot better in IBMA world. And uh, th those were humble beginnings. I remember you just, you didn't have the staff for the, all the machinery you have now. You just had your... What was it, a screwdriver and some glue? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how, how the years go by. One of the gentlemen you would have met back then, uh, uh, Chuck Neitzel, has been our top craftsman all these years. And he just about three weeks ago retired after working for us for 42 years. Oh, how wonderful. That's good. So did he get a gold banjo to watch <laughs> yeah we're working on that we're working on that <laughs> to watch that's good <laughs> we did him a beautiful album of the history of his working from the beginning all the way through all the years and all the banjos he worked on he did a yeah, lot of custom work those are the behind the scenes people that you don't even realize how, how critical they are in the pathway to hear the sounds that we all love you know right. uh uh and, and and it's it's neat. A lot of them, you know, they're not looking for a spotlight, but when a player acknowledges the work of the person who made the instrument as good as they did, I know that that really tickles the luthier, and uh, you know, or the person who works in the shop, and uh, try to be aware of that, you know, and, and for that matter, the DJs, and and also the people like uh, like David, who, you know, I don't know if you do plan on stage, David, and get applause, but you're facilitating that whole thing for other people, and um, uh, the people who are the figureheads who, who, who get the applause need to, I think, need to know that there's a whole support team that deserves, um, you know, the, the right pats on the back, uh, and um, I, I've known a few people who looked for their name on the back of an album cover and it wasn't there. <laughs> and you'd think, it's, well, so what? It's just a little, so what? But 
it really does matter. So I hope you know people understand that about giving credit where it's due. It's you know there's a lot of people who do this kind of work. That's yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. Well, Pete, it's it's great to hear that that uh, that you're you're still going strong and playing, and that it's just uh, as he said, it's it's just something you have to do. Um, this. Mm -hmm came up in, in, in another Deering Live with Allison Brown, too. Um, she said it, how it was, went, it's just something she has to do to play. It, and when they asked her how important it is that, that feeling for young artists, what would you say for young artists? Starting? I heard what she said, and she couldn't have said it better. She referred to the fire in the belly factor. I didn't think I was going to stay listening to the her interview for that long, but I stayed very interested. I listened to a big chunk of that interview because she expressed it so well. And that's what I tell people, you know, I even wrote a book, it's, it's pretty much outdated now, but 30 years I wrote a book called How to Make a Band Work. And one of the things in it is, uh, well, um, should you, when do you, when do you give up your day job? And the answer is never, sure. <laughs> at least not in bluegrass, you know. And, um, um, but if, if you want to dabble with it, that's fine. You know, uh, you can actually get to a pretty good level of enjoyability with playing a simple banjo with other friends who have simple instruments and still have a great time playing good sounding music. But if you actually really want to pursue this to where you're going to excel in your field, you know, it's not a nine to five job. It's like a all. It's like a twenty four seven job in a way, and um, and just the promotional end of things is something that a lot of people don't quite understand. Uh, I had already worked pretty hard on the promotion of the band Country Cooking when we started Hot Rise, and I was the only guy in Hot Rise who had uh, the gumption, you might say, for doing that particular kind of work. We had experts in other fields, you know, uh, driving the bus or uh, working the PA system, a lot of other skills involved, but I was the one who did the, the booking, and uh, it, it, it's a hard job, you know, it's a sales job, and I wouldn't have had any taste to do it at all, except that that's what made it possible for Hot Rise to be a band. If we didn't have gigs, that we didn't have a band, so I got the gigs, and we finally got an agent after several years, and that freed me up, but um, even then, when you're supervising an agent and when you still have to do interviews and publicity and all this stuff, uh, uh, the, the fun part of the day is like a couple of hours where you get to play and then maybe the hour after the show where you get to hang out with people who came to the show. And the rest of the day is a lot of transportation, a lot of <laughs> moving from one place to another, uh, checking in and out of hotels and things uh people when we go to europe they would say well you're not bringing your wives because <laughs> anybody that they know if they went to europe it would be a family occasion well not for a bluegrass band you're uh unless the wife wants to schlep stuff upstairs at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> after the gig and uh just spend the next day five hours in a van traveling uh looking out the window uh i'm not I don't want to make it sound like it's not fun. It's still fun if you like the people you're with, but uh, it's deceptive, the, the life of a musician 
the part that everybody sees is the is not the very typical part. You know, mm -hmm. high rise does not walk around all day in suits, for instance. Just in case <laughs> anybody wondered about that. <laughs> and we don't just break into Nellie Kane on the spur of the moment. Uh, we do it maybe once in front of people at night. And that's about it. Um, but um, if you have that fire in the belly, like Allison said, uh, you'll stick it out. Tomorrow, uh, tomorrow is the day that my son's film, Safer at Home, opens in theaters around the country and it's going to be on uh, streaming service and all that. And that's a really challenging occupation, being a movie director and uh, writing scripts and things like that. Really uh, competitive uh, job with a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And when he went into it, I kind of, as his dad, I sort of privately, internally assessed whether this would end up just being a heartbreak for him or whether he actually had the gumption to dig in and pull it off. So this is now his third film and he's getting, he's in talks for the next films that he's going to be doing, so he, he's made it, but it was a 10 year plus battle to get this far, and um, there, even Alison Krauss, people thought she was an overnight sensation when in her 20s she became famous. Well, she'd been at it for 10 years when she got really famous, so um, it's just the nature of the occupation, and those of us lucky enough to succeed at it and then get to play the music that, that we, we want to with our friends. That's great, but you can also play the music you want to with your friends and not have it be your livelihood. And uh, to make that choice is, is somewhat bold. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, it's a, it's a similar, you know, similar story with, with Janet and Greg's story of the fire in the belly to get through all, yeah. the, all those hurdles. Clear as day. Mm -hmm. And anybody in bluegrass, you know, uh, if they start a business, they have to depend on a lot of goodwill and their own uh, fortitude to make it work. Same thing with people who run festivals, you know, on a beautiful festival weekend where there's a big crowd. Oh, wow, that festival promoter's really raking it in. Lucky him. Okay, next year it's raining the whole weekend and he, and he has to go, go back to the bank and take money back out again. Uh, and... Uh, to put up with all that stuff, you have to really believe believe in your mission. So uh, that's one of the things. Uh, when I met a very famous star at the Grammys, uh, Shaka Khan, you may have heard of Shaka Khan. So I was at the Grammys and I happened to be next to her and we were just fighting our time for the longest time. So we got in a conversation and um, it was interesting comparing notes with her because she had just finished making a record Oh, I, oh I, we had to record some of it in Berlin, and then there were some in London, and some in L.A., and some in Chicago, and I'm thinking, that would blow the whole budget of Rounder Records for their entire catalog. <laughs> and I'd say, well, it's pretty different in the world of bluegrass. You know, we're, we're pretty big in bluegrass, and we like sell 30,000 records, and I look at her, and she's kind of pitying me, like, I know that if she sold 30,000 records, she'd be on the street the next day. <laughs> that would be it for her. But I told her, uh, one thing about bluegrass, though, is that when you're at a bluegrass festival around bluegrass people, the only people you're going to meet are other people who are as into it as you are. You're not going to meet people who are just there for the money. 
if they were, they'd be kind of nuts. <laughs> so the only people you meet are people who are just really eat up by the whole thing the way you are. And now she's looking at me instead of with pity about my 30,000 records. Now she's envious. It was pretty clear from the people she was hanging around with that they were just business people. They weren't her musical buddies. And uh, so we're, we, we're lucky we have this wonderful community. And money is not the defining part of the community. It runs on money, but we find ways to make it work even when the money is tight. And, uh, and the camaraderie and the respect for the, the great musicians who came before, the great musicians who are on the way up now. There's so many great ways of being involved. Uh, I, I feel so lucky. And at the age of 75, when you look back on your life, you know, what did I do well, what went well, what didn't go so well? I can't, I always think, lucky me, I got to be a bluegrass guy. Well, Jenna and Greg, thanks for dropping in and wishing Pete a happy birthday. Well, sure. Happy, happy, birthday, birthday, happy birthday, Pete. Now get back to work and make some more banjos. <laughs> hurry, hurry. There's somebody yeah. right now who wants one. You don't want to make them wait. That's right. No, uh, I always look forward to seeing Greg and Jenna. We almost always see each other at Merle Fest every year and looking forward to that again. Yeah, definitely looking forward to it. I think everybody is looking forward to getting back to seeing and playing live music both of it um kind of sticking on that young artist um thread what do you see in young banjo players that um you would when they're trying to find their find their sound and kind of you know get to it to a new place um you know they can they're competent on their instrument but they just just they they don't, don't, you know, they don't stand out from anybody else. Uh, anything that's, that would... a, that's a very pertinent question. I mean, a lot of people, I think, have that feeling, you know, well, I've learned, I've learned the ropes. I know how to sound more or less like what Earl Scruggs does and maybe learn some fiddle tunes melodic style. Uh, what worked for me is the fact that I just try to keep my ears open and let things that emerge, give them respect. Um, I tell people you never know when you might come across something that would be a, a cool tune or a cool idea that you could build a tune or a song around. And the successes that I've had with either tunes or songs, a lot of times it's the smallest germ of an idea. Like my biggest song is called Just Like You and I just had the idea to have a song that would, somebody go, let me tell you my friend. And when I started with that, it turned into a song. And uh, I'll show you one thing that I, I like showing people, which is whatever you like, whatever it is that you like, that's the foundation of your style. If you just like what somebody else does, keep looking around until you found something that somebody else didn't do and you like it. So that happened to me I was, uh, when I was in my 20s. I was just sitting around trying to play, play this lick. That's a Bill Keith lick where mm -hmm. what you do with your right hand is you go, that's index, thumb, index. And it's not something that Earl ever did, Earl Scruggs. Uh, but Bill Keith came up with a lot of little different things. And so he had this neat lick. Um, 
sort of you play one note and then the one below it and then back to the first one and you can do that on separate strings. Mm -hmm. You can't exactly show it so easily on this, but so I was going that's the second string open. Can I get this on? It's confusing with the zoom thing, but yes, index on the second and then that's the third fret of the third string. So that's a four note thing. So I thought, well, what if I put another finger on and off? So here's a finger on the first fret of the second string. Instead of, I'm going. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then I absentmindedly tried it on the next string over. Same thing, third string, and then the fourth string, third fret. Third, fourth, third. So it went. And I thought, well, that's, that's catchy. So I just started playing it, and it turned into this little tune. Uh, well, you'll, you'll hear it in a second, as soon as I start playing it. for an F chord to D. And then I just finished it up with this G7 chord. So it's all pretty straightforward, simple elements, but I never heard something quite like that. So I, start, I gave it a name. I called it Huckling the Berries. Mm -hmm. Probably inspired by shucking the corn, <laughs> so, <laughs> huckling the berries. Let's huckle them. And um, that was when I we had just started country cooking, and I showed it to the other guys in the band, and they all came up with good solos for it. So when we got to make a record, lo and behold, that was on the record, and everybody got to show off on it. And uh, a few years later, I heard uh, I met Mike Bubb, who is a really good banjo player, young guy. He's great bass player now, as we know. At the time, banjo was his thing, and he had won a banjo contest playing that song. <laughs> so you never know what is going to happen when you start with something that might seem very um, nondescript and not important. So if you give it some importance, you give it a name, and you show it to other musicians, and you stir the pot a little bit, you never know. It'll, sometimes it won't go anywhere, of course, and sometimes it really will. And um, that's how my career happened. A lot of accidents that I realized were good accidents and then I would stay with them and keep working on them. And so I've written, I don't know, a few dozen uh, banjo tunes and um, then the trick is finding people to play them and I've had good luck with that. So um, that's how it worked out for me. But I, bl bluegrass and banjo are so versatile that if you just want to play for fun one day a month and not practice a lot that's okay it's it's for having a good time um no pun exactly intended but that was a good name for them to call their banjo the good time <laughs> banjo and um 
the whole business of, oh, I have to take lessons and I have to learn music theory and what's the proper posture and the proper hand position. You don't have to go to those kinds of lengths. I just saw Jens Kruger talking on Deering Live, I guess, about uh, Michael Cleveland and his fiddle technique, and he holds the bow entirely wrong. It's laughable the way he holds the bow, except he's the best fiddler in bluegrass or wins the awards every year because uh, he, kn he knows how to make it sound good. And uh, we're not at a, f you know, bluegrass and banjo are not in a formal kind of music right now. It's just kind of everybody experiment and do what you will. Like when I asked Ralph Stanley, uh, do you wear your picks regular or do you bend them? And he says, oh, I bend them. And I said, how do you do that? And he says, with my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, oh, okay. I'd like to see uh, how Stravinsky um, tuned his piano, <laughs> probably not with his teeth. Um, anyway, so that's one of the things I like about bluegrass is just people doing the best they can and if they do it long enough, it gets really, really good, and it can really touch you in your soul. Uh, it's not just mechanics. Yeah, and uh, I want to get to a few questions we have coming in uh, yeah. from from um, from our listeners. We have one, uh, Phil Borner. He says, "How did Columbia College influence your becoming a, ban a bluegrass banjo player?" It's asked by a fellow grad of Columbia. Well, uh, when I went to Columbia, I was, I, I, because of the way New York schools work, I got in when I was 16 years old, which was way too young. Girls wouldn't look at me. They were always two years, at least two years older than me. But I had the banjo, and I met some people at Columbia. In fact, just heard from one of them that I was in a band with at Columbia. And that's any place, anytime you can go to where a bunch of interesting people are, You'll either find people who are already interested in bluegrass or people who, once they hear bluegrass, will get interested in it. And so that happened to me at Columbia. I uh, even organized the Dixieland Band at one point, and I got to be on um, WKCR, their student-run radio, and that was an amazing opportunity. It was just an accident. Somebody said, you want to do this with me? And I said, yeah, I'll do it with you. And then he quit, and I was... I had a bluegrass radio show for seven years off of the Columbia station, and that's that opened a lot, a lot of doors for me. And um, uh, so Columbia, I can't say that much about what I learned in the classrooms. A lot of it was not only boring, but even though I passed the classes, I wouldn't remember anything that happened in the class <laughs> because I wasn't using it for anything. And um, but but I did, I was able to connect with a deep interest of mine which was the music at Columbia so I, I, I thank Columbia for that part of it even if the classes were boring maybe I just wasn't smart enough yet to understand what was going on and in fact <laughs> my grades probably ref reflected that <laughs> it's all part of the journey um, we have another question from, from Rodney Dean uh, says, just picked up a four-string and have never played before. How can a guy almost your age learn to play? And that's isn't specific to a four-string, but just uh, yeah. a question a lot. How can, how can older people who are just starting well, out learn to play? The, the thing is you just start. You just have to start. Like um, what I tell people sometimes, somebody my own age might come up to me or say, let's say somebody who's 72. Uh, 
I'm 72. I, I, I always wanted to play banjo. Should I? I said, well, if, if you're counting on living a second life, maybe you should wait until then and then start when you're 10. <laughs> but if you're not counting on a second life, start now. And then 10 years from now, when you're 82 and somebody says, hey, you're pretty good. How long have you been playing? You can say, well, I've been playing 10 years. And that's legit. Uh, and if you start uh, in January, by December, you'll have been playing for a year. And a lot can happen in a year. Now, on the subject of four-string, I'm not against four-string and four- or five-string banjos, but most people who want to play the banjo, most people, statistically, want to play because they heard some five-string banjo playing that they liked, and they might accidentally end up with a four-string banjo, and they don't realize that they're rather different animals. They're tuned differently, the neck is different, even though the, the round body part is pretty much interchangeable. If they want to play five-string, they need to get a five-string banjo. Uh, of course, Deering makes five-string banjos and four-string banjos. They even make lefty banjos for people who are really uh, statistically unusual. That's all fine. But the person who, with a four-string should understand the kind of banjo playing that they want to play. Is it four-string banjo that they hear that they admire? Or if it's Earl Scruggs, don't play a four-string. <laughs> you need a five-string banjo from, from the get-go. Um, but the main thing is to just start. And then uh, there's all these learning programs that I keep running across that don't really start in the way that I consider is the smartest way. The smartest way has to involve fun. <laughs> F-U-N is how it's spelled, and it's also the first three letters of the words fundamental. Oh, my wife just changed the light in the room. Thank you very much. Um, so in bluegrass, what we do is we say, hey, learn three chords. One of them is G, the open chord that's a free chord. And C and D7 are not very hard. And once you can just play with a strum, you get the thing in tune, and you can get it in tune using a device you can buy for $20, and you don't have to have a good musical ear to get it in tune, and once it's in tune, and you learn how to lay down your fingers to make simple chords, you're making music. And then if you start playing uh, a song using a songbook for when to change chords, and you know the words, like, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine, you make me happy when skies are gray, it's that easy. And then, once you learn a roll, instead of a strum, you can go, You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. Make me happy when skies are gray. So that that's a nice, easy path that a person can probably master in a week. And once you know one song like that, guess what? There's thousands and billions of songs that have the same three chords. So you can play a lot of songs without having to learn how to play a lead. Playing lead is harder. If you simply have a simple rhythm pattern, like I was just playing thumb index, thumb middle, and that's all, then just making chords and trusting muscle memory. And after a while, your, your hand knows where C chord is, just like it knows where the key is where you put your ignition key 
in if you have one of those kinds of cars or where the switch is for the bathroom. Your body knows right where it is. So you don't have to look even. And that works with your left hand making chords and it also works with your right hand. You know, writing your signature is infinitely harder than playing a thumb, index, thumb, middle pattern. That's all you gotta do over and over. So in other words, if you pick an easy starting path and then just go down the starting path, you're, you should be having some fun now. And if, once you're having fun, that's your motivation to do some more. And that's what gets people started, wh whatever their age. That's great advice, yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't, don't remember why you started picking it up, you know, to enjoy yourself. Don't, don't get it too bogged down and too, too serious about it. There's amazing, uh, uh, there's amazing detours, like when somebody says, oh yeah, well, I took banjo lessons and the first two lessons were all about scales and theory, and I'm thinking, that's not a good teacher. <laughs> I mean, I don't care how good of a player he is or how wonderful a person that person may be, you gotta make it easy and you gotta be aware of what motivates people and press that motivation button whenever you can. That's one thing in the Wernick method that works because when people get together with other musicians, there's a ton of motivation to just survive, just not embarrass yourself. And then when you realize you're, you're doing a pretty good job, then you say, I know what I'll do. I'll, next week when we do Circle Be Unbroken, I'll have my break together and I'll surprise everybody by playing my break. And they will be surprised. They'll go, wow, you didn't do that last week. That's great. That's number. That's that's the A plus style of motivation. When other musicians hear what you're doing and appreciate it, and the anticipation of playing in front of other musicians with other musicians, you don't have to motivate somebody when that's going to happen. You know, the any number of people who teach weekly lessons, they know what I'm talking about when I say, oh yeah, there's that student who comes and say, well, I just didn't have time to practice this week because X, Y, and Z, and A, B, and C, and D, E, and F. And what is the teacher going to do? Say, well, better luck next time, but I don't have anything new to show you if you didn't practice the stuff from last time. But in the Wernick method, people are making big gains week after week because they, they want to be good when they play with people next week, and we show them how. So that's, that's one of the reasons I'm so juiced on my occupation now, because I know we're bringing a lot of people into bluegrass. Uh, we've had over 10,000 people uh, do registrations for our classes over the years and and from our surveys 80% of them have deepened their commitment to the music once they take our classes so I'm proud of that. Oh, Jamie, we can't hear Hello, you. Hello, Jamie. No, I'm can't, here. can't hear you. I'm there here you right now. Now we're in. I'm gonna let Dave uh, turn on the light for a second. Turn on the light. It's got slowly disappearing in into darkness. And <laughs> <laughs> take him back out for a second. Uh, I've got a couple more questions um, from the uh, <clears throat> from the chat here, if you don't mind. Um, sure. uh, Clinton asks for stage performance. Do you use a mic and a pickup? If so, what no. pickup do you like? No, I uh, I'm not against pickups. I used to be because I never heard a good one. And the banjo sound is something that's really important to me. And um, so the microphones, there's a lot of microphones that a banjo can sound good over. 
the the workhorse that is still a lot of people's favorite is the SM57 by Shure, and it doesn't cost much more than a hundred dollars. And one of its big features is you can drop it on the floor and it still works, <laughs> and that happens at gigs. Um, but I've used a AKG 414 condenser mic in the studio that you don't want to drop that one. It costs over a thousand dollars, and um, what I'm using right now is a, a Samson Meteor microphone that goes right into my computer. And uh, the main thing, though, for any when people agonize about how do you get your sound, I don't want to sound too simplistic, but a lot of times the instrument is not really the main thing, or even how you set up the instrument, or even pickup versus microphone. And those are important factors, but the, by far the most important factor is the hand and the brain of the player. And I've seen it time and again where a good player can make a very below average instrument sound really good because they know how to coax the sound out of it. Um, so that applies to almost everything having to do with sound. Now for stage, I just like a microphone because um, in general they do sound better and you can work a microphone. You can move in and out of it and control your volume in a lot of subtle ways that are an important part of the weave of the music. With a pickup, you can play less hard on the instrument, but you can't just work the microphone when it's a pickup. Uh, the pickups that I used to hear just didn't sound very good, but I've heard some banjos sound very good, but they usually need other kinds of gizmos, uh, equalizers, and um, oh, I won't get into the technical aspects of it, but um, Hot Rise faced these things time and again, and uh, very often the solution was relatively low-tech, but have somebody with really good ears running the sound system, because they can make adjustments for the sake of what the audience hears. That'll be more perfect than anything I could have done uh, on my own. And my job is just to play and make the instrument sound as good as possible. So that sounds maybe like I'm copying out from the answer, but I have nothing to say about pickups. Uh, a lot of people hear me playing my uh, banjo through a phase shifter, yep. but I'm playing in a microphone and the microphone is going into this phase shifter. And um, I think it was um, SM6 or something like that is the latest Shure microphone that I've used that has a little bit of an edge over the 57, but. And do you play when you're using the phase shifter, do you have two mics set up, one for the straight acoustic? No. Signal and one for the going in? No, uh, the, 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 the box is a modified box. It's a phase shifter I bought literally in 1974, an MXR phase 90. And it has a button when you step on it, the effect comes in. Sure. And basically that's how it works. We just use the same microphone and when I wanna hear the phased sound I step on the button that's awesome yeah that was the second part of Clinton's question actually he asked does one work better with the phase, the phase shifter so that, that helped um, the, phase, the phase shifter likes the low end of the banjo sound uh, okay. uh, when, when you play kind of pleasantly and make sure some of the low sounds are in there the phaser interacts with that in a you know just a warm way that's hard to describe but it hooked me when I heard myself playing through it and I decided all right I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna get a little notoriety for playing my banjo through an effect 
And I got to hear reactions from everybody, from Norman Blake and Pete Kuykendall to Bill Monroe. (laughs) Bill didn't say anything. He just went up to the sound man and said, what is that? And the guy explained it as well as he could. And then Monroe walked away. (laughs) Presumably to go buy a face shifter. But Norman Blake, (laughs) who's pretty dang fussy and a a real hero of mine musically, he, he, he made a point to tell me how much he liked it. So, and the guy playing fiddle with Jim and Jesse, Joe Meadows, back in the 70s, he came running up to me and said, how do you do that? And I told him about it. And, and this was a guy who played fiddle with Jim and Jesse. And he, he's the guy playing fiddle on the Orange Blossom Special as recorded by the Stanley Brothers. So I thought, all right, I've got some approval from, from uh, some okay people. And it helped me sort of hold my head high even when occasionally people would um, put it down. But my main solution was just not to use it too much so that if somebody didn't like it, they didn't have to wait too long before I, I wasn't doing it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, Jameson Smith uh, is asking, have you ever tried fingerstyle guitar with a banjo picks? Yes. Uh, when I was in college, um, playing and living in a dormitory, there was just no way to practice banjo with picks on unless I wanted everybody to hear me on the whole fifth floor. Uh, so that's when I got into finger picking guitar and I also started writing songs around that time. And I did a little performing with it and I tried using the picks. Um, and you can get used to picks or you can get used to no picks. And I did some of both and over time I just haven't been doing it that much. so. I don't have to say I did, but we're talking about stuff that happened in the 20th century. <laughs> so I don't know how well I remember it. But I think uh, a good result can be had either way. I think that's great advice, too. All right, I think we've probably got time for, for one more. Um, and that is from... I can't find it now. I've lost it. I apologize. Okay. Um, TN Chappie, I presume Tennessee Chappie. Um, Pete, I just turned uh, 65. So what should be my self-expectations of proficiency? Ooh, that's... I'm sure this is a question for uh, a few of our guys out there. Well, um, that's... I'd have to listen to the person and see whether their hand is working well or it's not working well. And you can be klutzy at the age of 10 or at the age of 25 or at the age of 65, it's possible to be klutzy or to have a nice coordinated feeling in your hands. And when I get with a particular player and I realize whatever limitations they're up against, I try to sort of think within their limitations. If a person, for instance, just has a hard time assimilating a whole arrangement of a banjo tune with a whole melody thing going and lots of moves, they might not want to aspire too high for that and yet they can still have a great time uh, just well, let's just say this land is your land again say they like that song and it's a three chord song there's a lot of extremely likable three chord songs famous ones so here's a standard roll I'm going thumb index thumb middle and this land is your land this land is my land from California so that's the very easiest way you can do it. Just make the chords with your left hand and roll 
with your right hand. After a while, the role might seem like, how can you sing while you're doing that? Well, muscle memory takes care of it. Remember, you can talk and walk at the same time, but not the same week that you learned how to walk. <laughs> you need to concentrate on walking. And the same thing with your role, it takes some concentration, but after a while, you can do it just like you could, you could be uh, sweeping some crumbs off the table with your hand and still do it, or write your name you know, in, in a signature. It's the miracle of muscle memory. So once you have that harnessed, you can keep building your skills. And uh, if you have favorite songs, well, get a songbook with those songs in it. And now you're doing your favorite songs. Well, that's got to be fun. And now, say, you want to do more than just backup for singing. So it's time to do This Land Is Your Land. So... doing um, basically playing the melody but I'm gonna land on a melody note for a while I will start a pattern going it's just, just a standard pattern and it enables me to keep hitting that same string with the melody on it and that's what allows you to play something that sounds like a tune and then instead of just going you can go, that's a substitution lick where you can do this neat sounding slide and it still gives you New York Island to the New York Island. That's without the slide, but if you put in the slide, it's kind of cooler. To the New York Island. So as long as you aim low, you'll, you'll clear the bar easier. If you take Earl Scruggs' arrangement of something, you're not going to clear that bar very easily and you'll be frustrated, frustrated, frustrated. So learning real simple arrangements, and, and I teach people when I teach banjo, I teach them how to make up their own arrangements. I have uh, two videos set on that. You can find out about that on my website. I'm also going to be doing my first banjo camp in six years. I've only been doing jam camps for the last several years, but I'm going to do a, a banjo camp in the mountains of Colorado in early August. You can find out about that on my website, drbanjo.com. Um, and at, the, at those kinds of camps, I teach people, and a lot of them might be 65 or older, and I teach them how to make up their own solos, and usually they can do that by the end of the week. They know how, to, how it's done, and they can do it on any song they want, you know. <laughs> Now, if you want to play something fast and fancy, well, we got Jens Kruger. <laughs> he'll tell you. He'll tell you how to do that. But uh, that's like college, whereas what I'm doing is more like first and second grade. And um, I think that once you get hooked on something that's easy, well, and then you master it. Now you're ready for something harder. But don't try to do the harder thing when you haven't even mastered the easy thing. And the easier thing will be fun and give you a sense of accomplishment. So that's what teachers try to do. Is they're always wondering how to make sure the student gets someplace. And if they come in and say, I just want to play Foggy Mountain Breakdown, just show me how to do that. That's like saying, well, I just want to be in one NASCAR race and win it. 
<laughs> you know, you got to do some homework for that. You're not ready for that yet. Sorry. And if you want to just teach your muscles how to do something that you have no idea why it it's like that, there's people who learn how to do. I remember in first grade listening to a a girl read a book, and she was fluent. She was reading it fluently. And then later I asked her, did you know what the words meant that you were reading? And she said, no, because she had learned how to pronounce words off of a page. Wow. That doesn't mean she's, she knows how to read, right. so to speak, right. where she could understand the content. And there's a lot of people learning tablature without any idea why the tablature is there. And then it's befuddling to find out that Earl Scruggs always played Foggy Mountain Breakdown differently every single time he ever played it. So don't try to memorize one time when he played it because that's not how Earl Scruggs' hands and brain worked. So you have to, you're basically learning a language and there's a lot of study that goes into that. But you can have an elementary conversation with somebody even with a week's training in a language. So if you're wanting to have some kind of language and connection just start easy make sure you're only asking like what time is it and you don't ask what do you think of Shakespeare <laughs> you know? I, I think that's that's incredible advice um, thank you thank you so much as, as uh, you know it's we thought we might go for an hour as an hour and uh, 25 you have been uh, an absolute pleasure Really have. It's been really, really good to have you well, on. So I, glad to be able to uh, contribute to the, the Deering thing. Uh, like, <laughs> you know, the feeling is mutual. Anything that we can do to, to help you. And um, i got to tell you, like, there, there haven't been a ton of questions, but, man, have there been a lot of comments. Uh, obviously okay. saying happy birthday, happy birthday, but so many people kind of reminiscing, you know. Um, learned to play in your banjo book back in Milan, Italy in, in 1974. It's still going. <laughs> Happy birthday from Australia. I have my handwritten uh, books that I got from you in Ithaca in 70. You know, tons of, of, of messages uh, in the chat today about that. And you, you've clearly uh, touched and influenced a lot of people and, 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 and inspired them to play and, and made it uh, a little easier for them, you know. And I think what, what better way well, to end it, you know. Yeah, and may those people, uh, I always like to encourage my students to go out and busk. I don't know yes. if you guys have ever busked, but yeah, uh, Jens Kruger yeah. and Uwe Kruger did a lot of busking. Bela Fleck did busking. Yeah. Quite a few people. And then you have this amazing pleasure of seeing people's reaction when they hear a banjo when they weren't expecting to. Yeah. And a lot of the times they'll walk up and they'll say, I've always loved the sound of a banjo. That's one thing you can almost predict the exact words, the exact quote. And then if they ever get to pick it up, they always say, God, this thing weighs a ton. But I like the idea that anybody with a banjo, and I've seen, seen it, in fact, there's a movie I just saw the other night. Um, yeah, it's the movie, um, oh gosh, uh, Nomad Land. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's a few different people in the movie who are playing instruments because they don't have much, but they have... A simple instrument there's somebody just kind of strumming a banjo sounds darn good <laughs> you know absolutely it's enough to make other people want to sit there and listen to it even though there wasn't much going on it was still good so that's what i always hope is that wherever people took their knowledge that they got from me or some other book that they just use it to to help other people enjoy the sound that a banjo can make 
Right. And when it comes to bluegrass, there's more than just the banjo. There's all these other sounds that it blends with, and it's it's a miraculous concoction, bluegrass music, and um, I'm just so happy to promote it. That's, that's so awesome. And your advice on busking, uh, 100%. It, it, what a way to cut your teeth as a musician. Uh, yeah, and then you get paid at the end. They throw something in the case and well, go out. Maybe, or maybe you take a slice a, of pizza. Take, take a take a <laughs> something else thrown at you, you know? Like, it can happen, too. It depends how good or bad you are. But it's a great experience. T and Chappie asks, what is busking? Busking, uh, how, it's street performing, basically. It's going out to the street and, yeah. and throwing a case up and, and people throwing money into the case for... Um, uh, in exchange for your amazing musical playing. And, and like Pete said, it's how Jens and Uwe started out, was just busking nonstop. And I think when you're in that atmosphere, um, it's, a, it's a lot more uh, wild, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, they sometimes just start talking to you while you're playing. Or, oh, yeah. uh, I mean, I've gotten students from busking, I've gotten gigs from busking, and I've just gotten to meet people from busking. Um, that's... When you have an instrument in your hands, you, you know, you're presenting a gift to anybody with ears. If you just play something pleasant and nice, and it's just a great thing. And, and I just love that banjos are so available to do that. Yeah. To play a cello, you got to go woodshed for a long time before anybody should listen to you. With a banjo, you can do it like in the first week. That's right. It's really great. It's absolutely spot on. Pete. <laughs> Thank you so much. Are you in a position that's getting dark? It's gradually the, the light is getting dark. Are you, are you in, a, um, in a position to give us a, a little outro? Uh, play us out? Sure. I'll play, I, 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 I think I can play this one that's my latest tune. Um, awesome. I'm not going to play it as fast as I mean to play it sometimes, but it, we'll see how it goes. This one's called Meteor Shower. All right. Well, in the meantime, uh, hey, from Deering, from everybody, happy birthday. Enjoy your evening. I'm assuming you're going to go have some dinner. Um, David, thank you so much, as always. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and watching from, frankly, all over the world today. It's been really cool uh, to see so many people. Yeah. Um, and if you great. want any more about me, uh, the website, yeah. drbanjo.com, drbanjo.com. I'll flash so it up on the screen, screen right now. Thank Happy you, Pete. Gotta retune my fifth string. I thought something was off there. Let's try again.